either. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a sermon series called 6-8 at 6-8. It's all about our vision and values, and we talked about our uh, purpose, vision, and mission statement early on, and now we're into our values, and today we're talking about our second value. Uh, but I want to start by telling you a little story. There was a man in Thebes, love that name, Thebes. I'm going to name my next cat Thebes. Um, a man in Thebes who uh, wanted to build a house. And so he searched around the ground, this, you know, sandy ground for a solid foundation. And when he thought he found a good spot, he built his house. And although his house sat on top of a rock, he hadn't accounted for the rest of the ground to be sandy uh, or made up of sand. So the winds blew and the sand shifted and he found himself perched on an 80-foot spire of rock, just large enough for the footprint of his home. And the only way down or up was by this precarious little ladder which is, for us, a visual image of choosing to root yourself in the right place in life, right? Putting down roots or or sitting yourself on a strong foundation. And so today we come to this uh, value of what we call, it to say, grace matters. Um, And it states this, it says, Grace is the great distinctive of the Christian faith. Our regard for each other is born out of what we believe to be true of God as revealed in the story of Jesus. Therefore, we value authenticity, integrity, love, kindness, gentility, forgiveness, encouragement, serving others in sacrificial ways, etc., and so on and so forth, all the goodies in life, right? Um, We value deeply Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is probably the most important statement. At the very end, it says we live dependent on God's grace Daily. The key word is daily. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because building our faith on anything other than the grace of God, the grace found in Christ, leaves us in a precarious sort of position in life. Sands shift and, and we'll find ourselves sort of disconnected from God and disconnected from each other. We'll find ourselves without unity, right? And so, uh, I don't know if you know Francis Schaeffer. If I could get that, a little bit of that guy's DNA in me, I would love it. He is just, oh, he is, he's long since gone. But he started Labrie and all that kind of stuff in Switzerland, I think it was. And I think there's other locations around the world. But he was a Christian philosopher, basically. And Francis Schaeffer found that in difficult times, he had to rely on what he would say is the present value of the blood of Christ. The present value of the blood of Christ. Now, remember that phrase. That's a pretty good phrase. Um, like when you're upset, when you're going through your day and something's got you, you know, all tied up, say, I need to rely on the present value of the blood of Christ, right? And that is grace beyond what it does just at the moment of our salvation, but grace, utilizing God's grace daily, right? Because grace is counterintuitive. It doesn't really make sense to us. And it's got to be revisited and it's got to be retaught again and again because liberation comes from uh, the moment that you no longer think of the gospel just as a message that's relevant only to non-believers outside the room. Right? But it is relevant. Grace is relevant to us every day. All of us as believers, grace matters every single day that we wake up. We've got to be living in it. So we do better than simply reciting the lyrics of grace or the lyrics of the gospel story, right? We don't just have the information. We want the harmony. We want the melody to resonate, that cadence of the gospel to come out in our lives, right? To be within our hearts. 
And we find that grace, we find grace not only at that moment of being saved by Jesus, right? For me, it was like 30 whatever years ago, whatever it was, right? Actually, probably around 30 years ago. But we live out of it every day and we discover it constantly, allowing God to transform us by grace daily. And that's a big difference. But what is grace? What is grace exactly? We throw that word around. We throw it around so easily. Well, to understand today, that today, what grace is, we're going to use two important terms. The first is active righteousness, which is a, a, a striving to gain favor before God and others through our own efforts, right? And we'll explain that even more. But the second is passive righteousness, very important term. And that is the receiving of the free gift of grace for salvation, for salvation to be saved, right? But also for everyday living. Passive righteousness means gaining value and gaining worth only through the free gift of grace that's found in Jesus, only through that relationship with God our Creator, right? The only way, and it's, it is, by the way, the only way in which we as Christians can actually live in unity with one another and be able to receive and, for, and give forgiveness towards one another. Without it, we're eating each other alive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, very familiar passage, my favorite passage probably in the scriptures and one we come back to all the time at this church, but um, it, it, it's a passage that needs to be understood when making that initial commitment to Jesus, but as well it, 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 in our ongoing daily transformation into Christ's likeness through grace, it needs to be understood as well, right? And it says, and you were dead Listen to the language. You were dead, 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 spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Isn't that a great phrase? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we can't do anything, dead people can't respond, right? Made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. He did it to us. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So it's all about Jesus' glory, right? Now here's the the famous verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And faith is even a gift of, of God as well, right? Uh, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For, his, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we notice, and we have to understand, is when we look at Ephesians 2, it speaks of our utter helplessness, right? Now I say that with a smile. Because that's good news. It speaks of our utter helplessness in in our sinful nature. Our inability to to, to save ourselves, right? It's, It's our need of grace. That's what it's speaking of. And what we find is that grace is the only way out. 
It's the only way out. Help from above in hopelessness every day, not just at the moment of our salvation. We believe here at 6-8, once saved, always saved. Because it's about God, it's not about us. It's not about, about how I measure up. Once saved, always saved. However, to continually uh, you know, grow in our spiritual trans- transformation, we also uh, need to rely on God's grace, living in a constant need of it, and often we lose sight of it. We lose sight of how to live in it. So if we think we can just get saved and then be good and live rightly by willpower, we are viewing sin too simply just as a willful, deliberate action. Jack Miller used to tell this story, I think it was Jack Miller, that most of us look at the gospel. Sorry, I'm going off script here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, the slide person's, I, I got to care about that, right? Um, but typically, what people say is that, that the, we, we look at our lives as a, at a bank account that's overdrawn. And we've, we've gone into the negative numbers and we continually write bad checks, right? And, and the bank keeps charging us int- our, our fees and all this stuff. Uh, and so we're like thousands of dollars in the negative and we owe all this money and we can't pay it back. And so most of us think, well, Jesus comes along. If, if that's my life and that my negative numbers are my sin and my life, Jesus comes along and he pays back up to zero, and that's what we think the gospel is. And that from the moment of salvation, we think, well, now I've got to keep my account in the right. I've got to work to make sure that I don't go into debt again. But the truth of the matter is that is not the gospel at all. The gospel is that Christ comes along with unlimited funds. Your father owns everything. And he pours it all into your bank account. And you are the wealthiest person on the earth now. And you will never out of money that is the gospel that is true grace right amen uh, so if we look at sin superficially i always like the, the the puritans used to say that you look at your sin like a diamond right they really appreciated their sin their sin nature right you have to look at it in all the facets and how it shines out in different ways it's it, it's like a pretty picture to look at a diamond right but it it you have to get an appreciation for how your sin controls your life. Your sin nature overtakes you, right? So looking at sin superficially, rather than as a condition of humanity, leaves us in control of ourselves and leaves, leaves us in control of our own sin. Which brings about a false hope for us through a sense of self-justification. Leading to the belief that if we have outward order, then we have peace. If those people just wouldn't do those horrible things out there, I would be peaceful. If my wife wouldn't leave her clothes all over the bedroom and clean up her dishes, I would be at peace. You, you don't believe that, I know. I'm the, it's, it's me that does that, right? But if, if they would just do what I expect them to do, I would have peace. That's not living in grace. We want freedom but we don't want to go to Jesus for it. Right? Instead, we believe that other people and our situations are the cause of our bondage, the cause of our negative emotions, which is, by the way, living in victimhood. It's all, that's all it is. There's two things that are really hard in the spiritual life. That is victimhood and self-pity. And they're pretty much the same thing, aren't they? 
Viewing sin superficially, self-justifying, we put God in debt to us. Right? And we get mad at Him when others don't act as they should or how we think they should or when He doesn't fill, uh, tilt the world to our favor. And by the way, you can be living in victimhood. You can be living like this. Uh, you can be the, like this no matter what your position are, is on anything in the world. Your political ideology, you know, how you view this or that in the world. You can, you can be a legalist. You can be a Pharisee no matter where you are standing in life. Right? And when it all fails, when everybody doesn't do what you want or situations come at you and you can't control them, we're left unable to admit that we are wrong and, that, and, and we are unable to extend forgiveness to other people. And that is two things that fallen people need and that is two things that self-righteous people can't bring themselves to do. They can't admit they're wrong and they can't extend forgiveness. Jeremiah was right when he said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see the good, any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an unha- uninhabited salt land. That is act of righteousness. You hear how it's dependent on everything outside of itself coming in order? Verse 7, blessed is the man who does trust in the Lord, who trusts is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for it leaves it, its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. That is passive righteousness. It's drawing from the stream that never stops flowing. It doesn't matter that everything else went dead and dry around it. It still has its nourishment always. The full bank account. Then he says, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and I think he does this for reason, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because our heart gets taken away so easily. We forget these things, right? And this is the difference between living in grace, realizing our total need for Jesus, as opposed to self-justification, which is living in our own self-deception. Which is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say to us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding or your culture's understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your paths straight. See, we live as spiritual orphans when we live without grace. When we're not living in the the grace of God every single day, we live as spiritual orphans, as if we had no heavenly Father in heaven who owns everything and loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us. And that means, number one, that for spiritual orphans, life consciously or unconsciously is centered on personal autonomy. And it's centered on moral willpower. Grace is understood as maintaining your own strength, not as God's transforming power in your life. There's a very big difference. Number two, spiritual orphans, for spiritual orphans, faith defined as trying to harder to do and to be better with a view to established, uh, establishing this good record or this, you know, looking good, you know, leading to self-justification before God and others. It is legalism. It is legalism. And you can be legalistic in any way, no matter what your belief system is, we can be legalistic about it because you're all right and everybody else is all wrong, right? 
Number three, for spiritual orphans, obedience is related to external visible duties with internal attitudes and deeper motivation virtually ignored. You never ask yourself the question, why am I actually doing this? Why am I reacting this way? Number four, for spiritual orphans, what others think becomes the real moral standard based upon visible success and failure. But the problem with that is that I don't get my value from you. I get it only from Jesus. Number five, spiritual orphans have I'm the victim attitude, right? And and that attitude is supported by coping strategies such as wall building and blame shifting and gossiping and defending themselves and all that stuff. And for spiritual orphans, all this is accompanied by an intense feeling of aloneness. When we really get somebody to be honest, they they feel very alone in this, this way, believing that no one understands them and that they're trapped by their circumstances. I think we've all probably felt these ways. Right? Two theologians, Erasmus and Martin Luther, debated the nature of grace way back when. Uh, I think Erasmus was a Catholic theologian. I think uh, Martin Luther was obviously the guy that spurred on the whole Protestant movement. He was the first Protestant, I guess. But this might be one of the core differences between sort of the, the drive between Catholic theology and, 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 and Protestant theology. And I'm not Catholic bashing by saying that. I'm just saying that there are re- there's a reason why I'm not Catholic. I mean, if you're Catholic, I, I get it. I, I know you can love Jesus and be a Catholic. I, I get that. But there's a reason why I'm not, and this is probably one of them. Erasmus said that grace is like one parent guiding a toddler across the room to the other parent. Right? So you're like, oh, come on, come on, let's walk to daddy, right? And the other parent is standing on the other side of the room coaxing the kid to, to them with an apple or a piece of candy or whatever. You know, I think he said an apple, but this day and age, maybe we say candy. Uh, but the near, nearby parent, you know, walking along with the child helps them. Like, like if they're about to fall, they pick them up, but they, they let them do it on their own power, right? They let them get to the father in their own power. And Martin Luther said, no, no way. That's not grace at all. And I think Martin Luther was right. He he says grace comes to us only in the discovery of our total helplessness. We can't get to the Father on our own. We're like a caterpillar in a ring of fire, he said. The caterpillar in a ring of fire is going to die if it goes anywhere, right? It's just got to sit in the middle and hope he doesn't burn up, which he eventually will. And deliverance only comes from above. God reaching down and grabbing that caterpillar out of the ring of fire. That's the only, that is grace. That is true grace, right? Grace is received only through the plea of the absolute desperate. Those that realize that they actually really do need Jesus, right? We may understand and experience grace in the beginning of our salvation experience with Jesus, but then life becomes rote and church life becomes rote and Christianity becomes rote and Bible studies become rote and all this stuff becomes rote, right? And we become familiar and we become proficient in ministry and we become proficient in our Christian relationships and we learn how to impress each other and what to say and what not to say and all that kind of stuff and what looks good in order not to really reveal the deep depravity of nor address our own hearts our own needy hearts. Life becomes a drama then, merely to be played out while looking good. I learned this. 
When I first came to Christ, I was so passionately like running after Jesus. And then I learned how to pray in a Bible study and what to say and what not to say and all that stuff. And not to really reveal my sin in front of people because I would be judged and all that stuff. And I think we're trying to create a different church life here at 6-8 where you can be yourself and you can be open with your heart. So, you know, life becomes this drama and you're trying to just look good in front of everybody and not show what's really going on inside yourself. However, what we find, here's the problem, that even for the most educated, the, the, the quickest witted or whatever, the, you know, the, 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 the people that can hide it well, even for the most experienced in doing this, we hit a wall. We always hit a wall. It all falls apart. When we finally realize the confidence that we have isn't faith, but it's a reliance on our own self-competency. It's not a reliance on Jesus. It's having a presumptive self-confidence that only resembles faith on the outside, but it eventually always fails. This is important stuff. This is the difference between freedom and the Christian life and just kind of living, right? Living in faith or passive righteousness and presumptive self-confidence or active righteousness are both based on a confidence, right? But they find their roots in totally different things, in, in confidence in totally different things. Faith begins with a total human weakness, an admission on it and and a reliance on Jesus and a reliance on His grace and a reliance on His power in my life to change me and transform me and to help me when I'm being a jerk to my wife or to you or anybody else. Right? Presumption relies on human moral abilities. We become moralists. Right? Religious accomplishments, my intelligence and my visible securities and what those things are are sifting shans. Those are things that that change. Those are things that have their limitations. My intelligence has limitations. Believe it or not, I know I'm I'm pretty... No, I'm just kidding. But we, we do have our limitations, don't we? It's why Christians can seem wave-driven and double-minded and may, not look, may look good on the outside, but be a mess internally. It's why we have secret sin lives and wrong motivations and lifelong emotional and physical bondage to certain things in our lives. We just can't get past them because we're not really living out of grace. See, cut off from grace, we can look good for a while. We can work it out for a while, but crisis always reveals our presumptive self-confidence, which feeds on success and positive circumstances and visible accomplishments in front of you. And when these things aren't present, it all disintegrates. It all falls apart. It's possible. It is possible to live as spiritual orphans in the church. It's possible to live as spiritual orphans, cut off from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and it's why Galatians 5.4 says this, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Oh, that hurts. That hurts. Because I've done that. It's why the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers and sisters. Oh, well, I'll add, because I think he meant that. Lest there be any of you uh, an evil 
in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So do it right now, right? For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the stand, to, firm to the end. That is confidence in Christ's work on the cross, right? As it is said today, if, you're, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts like Israel has done in the past. Now you might say, well, I'm not trying to live by the law. Well, I'm not trying to live by the law. I don't do that. But we are. When we don't apply grace to our, inner, our, our hearts, illuminating my own inner sinful attitudes. Or when I try to gain approval from others or from God, or I, I begin to stand in judgment on everybody else around me. Spiritual orphans harden their hearts and they see themselves as humble sufferers in their emotional pain. But in reality... They are closed off, racked with guilt. They are too proud and they are fearful to admit any failure or imperfection or sin or acknowledge that they have to have a complete dependence upon God. You know, museums will receive old paintings for restorative work and and they'll always do an x-ray of a painting which reveals an underpainting behind it, right? And an artist, what we find out is that an artist might... Uh, paint something only to paint over it later and the underpainting reveals the development of the final product all the mistakes all the changes they made throughout the process of making the final painting which if you think about it is akin to all the emotional scars left on us from childhood or early adulthood or whatever it is driving how we react to each other and driving how we react even to god If we could put an x-ray to our hearts, we would often see the twisted underpainting underneath of it leading us to understand how we react to all these situations, how we react to each other, how we react to God, why I get into cyclical arguments with people, and I can't seem to get out of it. Right? Amen, said the counselor. (laughs) Right? You know, in an episode of Mythbusters, great show, Wouldn't, wouldn't you just love to be those two guys, right? They mixed up this big vat of cornstarch and water and, you know, into this big thick goo, right, to see if, that they, if they could walk across it, right? And they could if they, they ran fast enough and they would run across it and they wouldn't, fall, they wouldn't sink in and they would run around in circles in it and all this kind of stuff. But if they stood still, they would sink. Trusting in self leaves us on sinking ground. That's what we're talking about. Running around doing good works, running around doing things that look good to everybody, blah, 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 staying on top all the time. Ah, that's tiring. It looks great for a while. But when something happens which stops us in our tracks or we get burnt out, we sink. Somebody asked me this week, you know, like about pastor life, you ever get burnt out and all stuff. I said, ah, you know, I used to. I don't feel like I get burnt out anymore. Because I'm really trying to operate in a different way. And this is what I'm talking about. Our underpainting comes to light, like in that kind of a life, right? And we react in blame shifting. We react with anger. We react with victimhood. We've not allowed the gospel of grace to be our foundation. We've not allowed Jesus total rule of our lives. It's all about his lordship, isn't it? Self-confidence, 
self-reliance, self-justification is always quicksand. We've not been turning the gospel mirror onto the self to realize that we need God's grace every single moment of every single day. We have a large capacity for sin. Maybe not outwardly. I'm not out, you know, sleeping around with my wife. I may not be out, like, doing horrible things out there in the community. But inwardly, at least, I have a very good ability to make judgments on you or to think wrong thoughts. And you'll never see that. But what's going on inside me comes out here. Comes out in how I minister to you. Comes out in how I treat my kids and my wife. Instead, we rely on our skills, our knowledge, our intelligence, our personality, our reputation, becoming self-protective moralists. We become Pharisees, Pharisaical. By the way, you, and like I said earlier, you can be a Pharisee if you're a Democrat or a Republican or a teacher or a trash collector or a pastor. Or, you, know, you can be a legalist. You can be a Pharisee. Whatever your belief system is, whatever you think is right and good in the world and all that stuff, <coughs> you can be a Pharisee in that. See, grace is only an add-on to our own strength in that kind of a life. We, we want God to release us from our predicament without our having to give up control of our own hearts before Him. We've not wanted to see the sinful patterns which arise from our life's underpainting because it's frightening since we would have to admit, right? We'd have to admit that we are sinful and self-deceptive and, and avoidance of these painful truths produce a need to be right all the time and, and a defensiveness in the face of any sort of loving criticism that we might receive from others. You can't approach that kind of a person. They, they've got a bite to them. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he did in the form of the Holy Spirit. In the form of the Word of God, he's, he's come to us. And He reminds us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is the only place in the Scriptures I will tell you, and I will stand on firm on this, Jesus was wrong when He said this. Jesus was wrong. Because apart from Him, I can do a lot of damage on you. <laughs> right? But we all know that's not what He meant. Apart from me, you can do nothing of lasting good. Of true good. Cognitively, we know all these truths, but we keep busy not allowing the Spirit to do, their, do His work in our hearts with them. We don't like the sinking feeling. We don't like to look at ourselves. We live out of our own strength. We live out of the law rather than living out of grace. Because grace means vulnerability between, between us and God and us and others. Certain truths come into play, like Romans chapter 7. I found that the very commandment, he's talking about the law, that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Made me want to do everything all right. So we find ourselves caught in this vicious cycle of blaming others and, 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 and circumstance and all that stuff and victimhood. And we can't see sin within us, which is actually a rebellion against God, which comes out on others, and we, we are really walking in darkness then. First John chapter 2 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There is so much hatred in our community, in our world, in our news right now. Hatred. Hatred. The law of God stirs sin to the surface of us. It's like having a glass with a like an inch of muck at the bottom and, and the law goes in as a and stirs it all up. Can you pull that muck out of that glass, out of that water? No. You can't do it for yourself. But God can, right? But the law of God stirs our sin to the surface and we realize we can't meet its standards. We can't measure up. Which is where grace steps in and takes over again and again and again. Once saved, always saved. But man, I've got to grow into my Christ-likeness. Living in stubborn blindness, spiritual blindness, God will take away our crutches. He loves His children that uh, enough to take away our crutches one by one until, until he, we're left with only the resource of His grace every day. The perfect law reveals our need as He rescues us from above. Right? Yet we want quick solutions. We're unwilling to endure the painful lessons of God. And we need desperately to grasp hold of this passive righteousness. Martin Luther said, but this Christian righteousness is the greatest righteousness. It has nothing to do with what we do or how hard we work, but it's given to us and we do nothing for it. We receive and allow someone else to do all the work for us and in us. And it's God that does it. That is passive righteousness. That's Ephesians chapter two, right? That's why we call it passive righteousness, he says. Conversely, in active righteousness or, or presumptive self-confidence, if you want to call it that, we look to outward activity to feel good about ourselves and we end up judging each other by our own, our own standards. Well, I'm all right and everybody else is all wrong. Unless you agree with me, then you're okay. But you'll eventually piss me off, right? Can I say that in church? I just did. Sorry. <laughs> See, let's realize... Active and passive righteousness look a lot alike. This is where like, the good Christian comes into play. The older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? They look a lot alike. But active righteousness will always be exposed through crisis. When the you-know-what hits the fan, that's when we'll find out who's really walking with Jesus. Therefore, crises are God's way of turning us away from ourselves and back towards Christ, back to Jesus. Away from self-righteousness to Christ-righteousness. It's a big difference in life. Jack Miller used to say, there's a great power in negative thinking, because nobody wants to be called the negative Nancy, right? So when you say, you talk about human depravity, everybody's like, well, that's pretty negative. Well, that's pretty negative. Well, get over yourself, right? Get over yourself, because it's true. There's a great power in negative thinking of the right sort, he said. Meaning that we, we can acknowledge our capacity for pride, driven by our sinful condition. Need is revealed then, the need of grace, and, and grace can then take over. It can actually do its work in us. To admit our own depravity, we realize what Christ has done for us then our circumstances and then other people, the failure of other people, they diminish in their power over us. The news doesn't destroy me. 
What you say to me doesn't destroy me. might hurt me a little bit, but it doesn't destroy me. And what we find is that we can forgive. We can extend forgiveness because we're convicted. We're convicted that Christ extends forgiveness not only to me, but also to you and everybody else that you hate out there. <laughs> right? Living an act of righteousness, we become record keepers, record builders, list keepers, right? For ourselves and others. Well, this day you did this wrong and this maybe this right, right? We become record builders for ourselves and others. And, and when others don't measure up, they get judged. What a way to live. That's horrible. But when we live in passive righteousness, record keeping is worthless. It's absolutely worthless. In passive righteousness or living under grace, uh, the grace of Christ, we're able to admit all that we do is for our own personal gain. I'm pretty honest about that. And we must take Christ's records upon ourselves. And we throw out the measuring stick we use to judge ourselves and to judge other people. That's freedom. That's true freedom. That's freedom to, that you've been set free for. See, good theology only works when it's applied to the inner life. But many times Christians use their own knowledge of God as the very tool to keep God out and to keep their world in what they think is order. But it's not really order. And it's impossible. If you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Bill Murray, brilliant guy. That guy's funny as all get out, man. We've got to birth another. Like, let's clone that guy, right? If we're going to clone somebody, let's clone Bill Murray. And what's it, what was his name? John Belushi. He would have been great, yeah. Crazy dude. Anyway, Bill Murray, I love him. But uh, in Groundhog Day, he's forced to live the same day over and over and over and over again. Groundhog Day, he wakes up the same, like, little burp, 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 the same clock or whatever and you know he's just a jerk he's always like making passes at this lady and she's like you get away from me and all stuff watch the movie if you haven't seen it it's old but it's wonderful you know and he and he lives the same day because he doesn't get it and when he finally surrenders and finally realizes that it's about him loving other people it's about him loving and being good and surrenders all of that surrenders all his pride and all his garbage and all his junk and all his jerkiness then grace and love can reign in his life. That's my theological interpretation of Groundhog Day. Most of us are reliving a nightmare every single day that we wake up in our active righteousness, right? We wake up angry and bitter and lonely and as lost as we were the day before, never able to truly grasp hold of the freedom of the daily grace of Jesus. We're upset about everything. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. And some of us outwardly. We need to live out of this grace as full sons, full daughters of the living God. As it says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, it says, When the fullness of time had come, just at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born in the body, right? Born under the law. Subject to everything that we were subject, right? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You didn't do it yourself. You were adopted. You were grafted in, right? And because you are sons and daughters, we can say that, right? There's a reason he uses that term son. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That, that intimate term, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
That's good news. Romans 8, 12 through 17 gives even more clarity. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. That is active righteousness. It's not to active righteousness. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Right? The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. That is passive righteousness. And what does he say? He says, and we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our own spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, your bank account is full. Jesus has put everything in it. And indeed, we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This is hard stuff, but we are sharing in it for the sake of His glory in the future. So we're, li- we're, 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 we're to live out of this true reality of adopted children having Christ's perfect record placed upon us with all the power to live it out daily between each other and between us and the rest of the world. Eustace in C.S. Lewis's the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think it was the last book, maybe I forget, but he had, he had been turned into a dragon and the reason he was, it, was a, it, was a, it was an outward depiction of his inward self, his sinful nature. So he'd been turned into this dragon. And he, and he tried, and he was so tired of being the dragon, he's trying to peel off the skin, right? He's like got his big claws and he's peeling at his skin. And every time he peels it, there's more uh, scales underneath. He can't do it himself. He can't get right with God himself. He needs Aslan to do it. He needs to surrender in uh, such a beautiful scene when he's finally just like, uh, you know, on the beach and he just gives up. And Aslan, what does Aslan do? He breathes on him and all the scales go away and he's made into this little boy again, a child of God. All of his sin nature eradicated. He's a new creation. That's the gospel. Grace is an undeserved gift. It's God breathing transformation into your life over and over again even from that point on. You've been adopted into the family of God. You, you, are, you are one of His children. Grace is that which you can't do for yourself. The rescue of the caterpillar from the ring of fire. Grace reveals your value and your worth and makes you a co-heir with Christ. A constant lesson It is counterintuitive to how we think we should live in relationship with God and each other. We we keep records and we've got to pay back everything, right? But that's not how grace works. When we can acknowledge it, forgiveness is possible. And reconciliation and restoration is possible, finally. Knowing we're all in the same sinking ship of humanity, dependent on our outward salvation from ourselves in all situations. Albrecht Dürer once visited Bellini, another artist, in his studio. And he said, before he left, he said, before I leave, I want you to give me one of those brushes with which you paint such beautiful locks of hair with, so I, that are also well-defined. It was, the magic was in the brush, right? Bellini reached out to take one of Dura's brushes out of his own bag. And he grabbed it, and with one stroke, he painted this beautiful lock of hair with every hair defined in that lock with, with Durer's brush. 
See, we tend to rely on ourselves, tend to think, you know, we can do it. But it's the submitted self in the hands of God, the master artist allowing him to paint a beautiful picture of the life through us. Right? And God doesn't paint over your underpainting. You, you're a brand new white canvas, a new creation in Christ, in the hands of the master. The difficulty is learning how to live out of that. I put these around the room, and I, there's, there aren't any more, but I can email them to you if you want to email me, if you didn't get one. Uh, in the Sonship course, uh, which a number of us have gone through, and I, I'm actually going to go through it with uh, at least one person, if not a few, uh, coming up soon. Um, this is a, I forget from what chapter it is, might be chapter one, but this is a list in that book, and there's orphan, spiritual orphans on one side and then children of God on the other. Just listen to some of these things. Uh, like three down, lives on a succeed-fail basis, needs to look good and be right, is performance-oriented. And then you look over to the children of God. They learn to live in daily conscious partnership with God, is not fearful. Um, I like this one, about four or five down. It has little faith, lots of fear, lots of faith in himself. I've got to fix it. Don't you always feel like you've got to fix it? Has a daily working trust in God's sovereign plan for his or, life, his or her life as loving, wise, and best, believes God is good. That's the counter to that. So it compares living as a spiritual orphan with living as a true child of God. And these are things that are extremely important to grasp hold of as we walk this faith out. I was going to read our mature Christian profile, but we've probably got enough. We've said enough today. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to go um, into a time of communion. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for Ephesians chapter 2. We thank you for the, the truth of that passage. We thank you for Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, for the truth of that. We thank you for Jeremiah 17. We thank you for your word all throughout, from cover to cover in the scriptures, that teach this message of grace and how you pursued your people and how you pull us out of the ring of fire and how you enable us to live in freedom as we walk this out with you. So we pray that we would learn this lesson well that you would give us that sense of humor that grace gives us about ourselves. That it's not being a negative Nancy. It's not being overly negative about things, but it's actually freeing to understand what we really are and what we really need. And then we can laugh at ourselves and we can give up all the game playing. Father God, convict us where we need to be convicted and bring us freedom where we need freedom. Yeah, thank you, Lord. This morning it was prayed uh, that you would hit us with a tidal wave of wisdom to help us understand your grace this morning. So, Lord, I pray that would be true, uh, that we uh, would just be overcome by your spirit uh, and just uh, your spirit would help us to understand uh, who you are and, and what grace is in, in greater and deeper ways, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Morning, guys. Uh, I'm Rachel. I'm the prayer coordinator here at 6-8. Uh, we meet every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. in this room over here to pray for our service. Uh, and this morning, uh, we were praying, and we just uh, felt um, just this idea that God is a God of restoration, um, that 
if you are feeling like you need restoration in your life, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family, um, in, in a friendship, anywhere in your life, um, come and um, let us pray for you this morning. Um, there was a picture of just this idea of, like, as it gets colder out, that we are um, just putting on layers, sweaters, mm-hmm. coats, uh, warmer, um, warmer clothes. Um, and that's just like a picture of what God's love is for us, uh, to just be um, enveloped in his warm embrace. Um, so if, if any of these things um, are uh, meaningful to you this morning, um, we'd love to pray for you over here um, from now until the end of the service. Amen. We are going to pass the tithe boxes. If you want, whoever's close to the front, if you can grab those and pass them back. We are a self-supporting ministry, and uh, we want to be able to do the kingdom work of God in this community and uh, without limitation. So I, I, I just pray that God would convict your heart with joy to, to give as he would ask you to forgive, not uh, to give, not not what I ask you to give. Um, and if you're visiting with us, don't feel any obligation to put anything in there unless God leads you to, then by all means do. There are other ways to give online and things like that, but let's just go to a time of communion. From now until the end of the service, you can come up. These guys are up here to serve it to you. Um, and this is the time that we really celebrate what Christ has done on the cross, how he shed his blood, how he, uh, his body was broken for us. And you remember in that, that upper room with his disciples in a very intimate moment, he took the, the, the bread and the wine and he said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. And do this in remembrance of me. You know, and, and we do this not as some empty ritual, but as a real true remembrance of what it means. There's something about taking a physical piece of bread and dipping it in this, this well for us it's grape juice, and uh, taking it in that makes us remember what Christ did for us in the body and how he overcame these things and how his grace flooded out to the world through, through this, this sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. So let, we're going to do that. Let me pray us into that. And you can come up any time from now until the end of the service to take that. Father, we thank you that you are uh, present among us right now. We thank you that you are fully embodied in this church like we said last week. And we thank you for this moment where we can celebrate that together. Celebrate your grace. Celebrate your sacrifice. Celebrate how you went to the cross for us, even though you, shed, you, you, you sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane just before this. How intense that was for you. How hard that was for you, but you loved us enough to do it. So we just pray that we would remind, be reminded this morning of what it took for you to do that, and that that would lead us to react in joy and gratitude and to walk in grace for the rest of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.